This morning, we're going to start with Romans chapter 9. Romans part 9. Uh, before we get started, this is, this is a heavy, heavy chapter of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get into some very deep theological points. And a lot of this is going to be teaching rather than preaching. Amen? Some, thank you, Mary. I appreciate that. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we just need a good teaching in the Word. Sometimes we need to be grounded by what we believe and what we know. Amen? Amen. Amen. So before we get started, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that I have this morning to share your Word. Lord, we do remember those in prayer this morning, those the victims of the tornadoes. Lord, we thank you for sparing those who, you, who were spared. Lord, I, I pray for Lincoln and his family right now that there would be healing and, and just divine, miraculous healing in his body. Lord, that it would be a testimony to your glory. Lord, I pray over this message this morning, Lord, that it would be your word spoken and not mine. Lord, let me depend fully on your holy presence this morning. Lord, that those who are out here would, would have the ears to hear, that there would be an understanding of your word and the power of your word. Lord, I thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We have been so far, and we've gone back and forth a little bit. Uh, Chris Neider was here last week, and he gave a very good message about Job and suffering. That was really good. Uh, We had just gotten back from camp, and so there have been times where the series has been interrupted, but we are back on track now with Romans part 9. We are going through each chapter of Romans. Now, I want to say this. Up until chapter 8, Paul isn't speaking primarily to the Jewish people, the people of Israel. Now, chapter 9, he starts speaking primarily to the Jewish people. And he says this in in verses 1 through 5. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Today, we are going to start a study within a study. We are studying the book of Romans, but the book of Romans, but we're going to start a study within the study of the book of Romans. There are three chapters in Romans, which are chapters 9, 10, and 11 that deal with the salvation of Israel or the salvation of the Jews. In order to understand the context of what's being said here, we can't just look at just chapter 9. We have to look at chapter 9, 10, and 11. That's how we read it in context. But we begin this morning in chapter 9. I had thought that possibly, and I don't know why I thought this. Tim, I don't know why I thought that I could, I, I know, it's just, it's one of those things. I thought maybe I could get through chapters 9, 10, and 11 all in one service. 
I thought, I'm think, I was thinking about it, I thought, okay, I can do this, make this point, and yeah, move forward here, and move forward, okay, we'll keep it all, it just doesn't work that way. Pretty soon, I was five pages in, and I was only at, at verse like six. <laughs> so, it's, it's not going to work out that way, but we are going to cover all of chapter nine this morning. So, we begin in chapter nine. Paul begins this discourse by sharing his sorrow. He shares his sorrow with the church in Rome, and his sorrow comes from the rejection of Christ by Israel. This is why Paul is so sorrowful. Israel has rejected Christ. Israel had it all. How many know that Israel is God's chosen people? Amen? Israel's got, they had it all. They had the adoption, they had glory, they had the covenants, they had the giving of the law, they had service to God. They had the promises, right? The Messiah, Christ, came through Israel. Israel had it all. And keep in mind that Paul is Jewish. Paul is a good Jewish guy. He is part of Israel. The fact that his own people are denying Christ, the fact that his own people are denying the Messiah, is causing him so much anguish. It's causing him so much turmoil internally that he makes a radical statement. And he says this, I wish that I would be cut off from Christ. I wish that I would be cut off from Christ if it meant Israel would be saved. I wish I myself were accursed from Christ that my brethren, that my brethren, He wishes, this is a radical statement. I wish that I would be cut off from Christ if it means Israel is saved. I wonder, because honestly, it sounds kind of crazy. When you think about that, that's a kind of a crazy thing. To most people, you think about Paul, and you think he's just this great apostle, right? The apostle Paul, I mean, he's writer of the New Testament. Most of it. Two-thirds of it. When you think of Paul, this is Paul showing that he is a real person with real human emotions. Paul is a real guy. The transparency of Paul here shows us how desperately he wanted Israel to be saved. I I have a question for you. Have you ever had such great love for someone that you would sacrifice your salvation for theirs? Have you ever had such great love for someone? And he said, you're saved and they're lost. I think about parents and children this morning. The great love. How, how many parents, well, this, this is kind of funny. How many parents have great love for their children? How many don't have great love? <laughs> I'm just The great love parents have. How many know that to be a parent means to be self-sacrificing? To be a parent means that you have to be self-sacrificing. You're sacrificing your freedoms. Right? You're sacrificing your time, your energy, your cooking skills. Right? My mother is the mother over nine children. I am one of nine. Just imagine, there's eight more just like me. 
I'm just kidding. Carol space right there. We're like, oh no. If you found out that your child, how, how many parents love their children? If you found out that your child was lost and headed toward damnation, you would be greatly troubled, right? There are some parents here who are facing that. There are some parents who are listening on podcasts that are facing that situation right now to where they're, they're saved, but their child is lost. You would be, your prayers would be endless, right? Our prayers would be endless. Our tears would be countless. As we desperately hope against hope that they would come to a place of salvation. Right? As a parent for a child. Now, when I think about this, I'm reminded of my grandmother. I am. My grandmother had three children in her life. My father, my aunt, and my uncle. My father and my aunt served the Lord. They loved the Lord. So two of the three are serving the Lord, but the third, my uncle, was living a drastically different lifestyle. Drastically different lifestyle. He gave himself over to sin. He ran away from the family. He moved to Hawaii. He was unreachable. We, the last thing we had heard was he was living with six other people in some house somewhere, but we had no idea where. My aunt tried to contact him. My father tried to contact him at points. Unreachable by phone or mail. And now, in fact, he could be dead for all we know. We have no idea where he is. None. My grandmother, until her dying day, was praying desperately for her son. My grandmother, until her dying day, was praying desperately for my son. I remember, I'd be willing to bet that if she could, because she, because that is her child, I'd be willing to bet that if she could, she would give up her own salvation if it meant him being saved. Have you ever been there? That's the desperation that Paul feels for Israel. That's the desperation that Paul feels for Israel. This was the great love he had for them, despite how they had treated him throughout the years. He's been in ministry 20 years now. He's been in ministry 20 years, and here's how they treated him. I I, I like what this commentary says. By the way, because of the teaching and the the subject matter, we're going to be using... uh, I mean, I I pulled some from some really good sources, so we're going to have some good commentary. It says this, We should remember that when it came to ministry, the Jews were Paul's worst enemies. They had harassed him and persecuted him from town to town. They had stirred up lies about him. They they made violence towards him. And yet he still loved them. Passionately. Can you speak that way about your enemies? Can we speak that way about our enemies? Those people who just, who just ruffle our feathers, right? There's some people who just rub us the wrong way. Do we still long for them to be saved? Do we still long for them to be in relationship with God? Do we still long for them? Some people would say, well, Pastor David, they're in this church and they're sitting right next to me. <laughs> Do we have love for our enemies? 
Paul had love for his brothers and for what seemed to be his enemies. Do we have a passion for the lost? Do we desperately long that they would be saved? One, one pastor said this. He said it this way. I like this. There is a love that seems beyond us. Or beyond me at least. Yet God can build it in us as we pursue the heart of Jesus for His people. If you don't love the sinner, if you don't want to see the sinner saved, if you could care less about where they end up, you might want to check your heart. Amen? We might want to check your heart. It's a love that seems beyond us at times. And and to be honest, at times it is beyond us. Yet God can build it in us as we pursue the heart of Jesus for His people. Verse 6 says this, But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. Israel has heard Christ, right? Christ has now been uh, crucified. He's been resurrected. They've been doing ministry now for 20 plus years. It's not that the Word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now this is going to get, this might seem to be a little confusing to some. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. And the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Paul starts to dive into this incredible truth when it comes to Israel. And I want you to hear this carefully because there's people who have questions about what will happen to Israel when it comes to the end times. We've, we've discussed this before a little bit. What will happen to Israel when it comes to the end times? And, and, and Paul puts this up for debate and he puts this up for what is going on here. He says, not everybody who is called Israel is of Israel. Not all of the seed of Abraham are the children of Abraham. Being related to Abraham did not make you part of Israel. Isn't that incredible? Being a part, being a part, being related to Abraham. Can you imagine if you were Jewish and you're reading this for the first time? Can you imagine if, if you're part of Israel and you read this for the first time? Where he says, well, hold on, not everybody who's a child of Abraham is part of Israel. Paul is saying that unless you follow Christ, you may have been born a Jew, but that doesn't make you part of the promise. You may have been born Jewish, but that doesn't make you part of the promise. I like what this commentary says. Paul tells us that no one is truly Israel unless he is governed by God. We have a parallel situation with the word Christian, by the way. Not everyone who is called Christian is truly a follower of Christ. Somebody say, ouch. Don't say, ouch. (laughs) Hmm. You cannot identify with the Savior. You cannot identify with God, but choose not to follow Him. Amen? It wouldn't make any sense for you to describe yourself as a Christian, but live as a non-Christian. It wouldn't make any sense to describe yourself as a Christian, but live as a non-Christian. How many people know that many people are doing just that? 
How many know that many people are doing just that? Israel cannot claim to be the children of the promise, but ignore God's Son who is the promise. Understand? Paul then starts to give examples throughout Israel's history of how God worked for Israel. He says this, uh, verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. He's talking about uh, Abram and Sarah, right? And not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, listen to this carefully, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. We've discussed Jacob and Esau before. Remember that? We talked about Jacob being smooth-skinned and Esau being hairy. In fact, the word, the name Esau, what does it mean? It means hairy. It's not the most original way to name someone, but that's okay. So if they, so let's, uh, well, I, I don't want to pick on anyone today. Let's pick on myself. If my parents had known what I would look like and they named me Baldy, it would be the same thing. When I came, when, when I was born, I probably didn't have a lot of hair. I'm just saying. Some people don't like that word. Esau, I have hated. Some people don't like the, some people can't understand what that is. I like what this commentary says. It says this, the word doesn't mean, because we use the word hated like, I hate some, if you hate somebody, boy. How many hate something? A bunch of liars, raise your hand. I didn't say someone, something. You hate something, right? Austin, what do you hate? Various football teams. I'm in the same boat, brother. I don't hate Iowa or Iowa State, but if it's OHIO, then we got problems. Tim, what do you hate? Oh my goodness. Pineapple on pizza? It's the greatest thing in the world. You and I are going to have discussions later. Okay. What is something you hate? Headaches. How many hate headaches? I do. I don't know anybody that loves a headache. I don't know anybody that feels a headache coming on and is like, oh, praise the Lord. Right? Gary, what's something you hate? Gnats. Oh, my goodness. We're going to have one service just on gnats. Doug, what's something you hate? Mice and rats. My wife hates snakes. My wife, I mean, I kid you not. Little garter snake. Little cute little garter. No, 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 no. no. Running, screaming. David! She's not in here today. I can say this. This is okay. You can all narc on me afterwards. That's up to you, but. Yeah, right? She'll hear that. She doesn't listen to my podcast. Are you kidding me? She hears enough of me throughout the week. Are you kidding me? She got us, see, we, we snakes that we live in, you know, in the country-ish, and, and she sees a snake, man, she hates it. 
the word, you know, when we think of the word hate, we think of something that's despised, right? We think of something that's like, uncon- I mean, just, oh, we despise it, we hate it. I hate, man, I can't think of anything I hate right now. Mosquitoes. I can understand why they're here, though. They feed the ecosystem. Anyway. <sighs> the wording here, I like what this says. The wording here doesn't mean that God unconditionally despised and damned Esau and all of his descendants. We say, oh, the uh, Bible says that Esau was hated. The fact is, Esau uh, in his life was pretty blessed. But what it means is this. It means that he preferred the nation that was coming out of Jacob than the nation that would come out of Esau. He chose Jacob's children for the special honor of being the line in which the Messiah came. Jesus, by the way, uses this same language. He says this in Luke 14.26. He says, anyone who follows me must hate his father and mother. Have you ever heard that, right? Jesus said that. He's not saying you should actually despise your parents because that would be breaking a commandment. The commentary says he's, he's saying that in comparison to our love for God, our love for our parents aren't, ought to be much less. It's in comparison to. But here's what happens. In diving into this, Paul brings us into the subject of the sovereignty of God. This is where we're going to get into some heavy teaching this morning. Say with me the sovereignty of God. How many have ever heard a message preached on the sovereignty of God? There's some good ones out there, really good ones out there. The sovereignty of God is approached from two distinct positions. It is the Calvinist view and the Arminian view. The Calvinist view, in case you're not aware, is that God exercises meticulous control over everything. God chooses beforehand who will inherit salvation and who will not. That's a Calvinist point of view. They have the five points of Calvinism. It's called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And then the five points of Arminianism is actually called FACTS, which uh, I don't know how they, <laughs> they came up with some great acronyms, I suppose. The Calvinist view and the Arminian view. Now, so when we look at the church today, most of it is comprised of either Calvinists or Arminians. Most of it. I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, in between there. Some have a mixed view of both. But uh, it should be made clear that both of these positions are held by people who love the Lord. Amen? Whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, both of these people are they're, they're Christians, they're strong Christians, and they love the Lord. You could be Calvinist or Arminian, and you could love the Lord. It should be, uh, one pastor said this, I like, he's, he said, this is an in-house debate. This is an in-house debate. And while these things can be debated, they shouldn't be divisive. Amen? While these things can be debated, they shouldn't be divisive. We're going to get into some uh, really heavy theology in just a minute. The, the Calvinist camp, how many are, are uh, aware of what it means to be a Calvinist? You can raise your hand, that's okay. How many are aware of what it means to be an Arminian? A few, that's okay. The Calvin camp. If you're in the Calvin camp, let's just call it the Calvin camp. 
The Calvin camp is composed of really some very good Bible teachers and theologians. Uh, there's also really great teachers and theologians within the Arminian camp. So let's uh, look at the Calvin camp. It consists of guys like this. John Calvin, uh, John MacArthur, there's a lot of Johns in this, John Piper, Mark Driscoll, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther. Those guys, they're all Calvinists. Okay, It's the main theology of Reformed churches, as well as probably most Baptist churches. It's the main theology of Lutherans, Presbyterians, and the like. When we think about Calvinist theology and what it is in, in regards to the sovereignty of God, that's those types of churches, those types of speakers, are going to be mainly speaking to Calvinist theology. The Arminian camp consists of guys called the first one, Jacob Arminius, John Wesley, Jack Hayford, Greg Laurie, Charles Finney, and it's the main theology of the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God, it's Free Will Baptist, it's Foursquare, it's Methodist, and the body that we're part of called the FCA. Amen? We're part of the Fellowship of Christian Assemblies. Now, I want to say this. As a pastor, I draw from all of these teachers and theologians. As a pastor, there's some really, really good stuff on both sides. There's some solid guys. There's some solid people on both sides. And it's not, it's an issue that's been debated for a long time. It really has. But it doesn't determine whether or not someone is a Christian. It's been debated for a long time, but it doesn't, there's solid people on both sides. There is, there's solid people on the Calvin side, there's solid people on the Arminian side, but let's, let's be honest, there's also nut jobs on both sides. Come on. There's some messed up people out there teaching messed up theology on both sides of the coin. So what is the Arminian view, Pastor David? What is the Calvinist view? The Arminian view, first, is that Christ died for all, not just for some. Amen? It's what's called unlimited atonement. That Christ died for all. Part of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, is L, and that is what's called limited atonement. The Calvinist view of limited atonement is that Christ died only for the elect, and that God has already chosen who will be saved and who will not be saved. It takes away the free will of man. Understand? That, there, that it comes to the sovereignty of God. The Arminian view is that God has complete freedom and authority to act in any way he wants to, including divinely limiting himself in giving us free will. The Calvin view is that those who will be saved have no choice or free will to resist the drawing of God. It's called irresistible grace. The Calvin view is that those who will be saved have no choice or free will to resist the drawing of God. Some would say that to be Arminian means that we don't believe in the sovereignty of God. And that is simply not true. The Arminian view is that at times, God will meticulously control the situation, and at times, he will let a situation play out without his intervention. Both of these are in line with him being sovereign. What does being sovereign mean? God is God, and I am not. Amen? 
How many want to say, God is God, and I am not? How many know that, hey, you are not God? Amen? There are some things that are just out of your control. And I know that's difficult for some of us who like control. But God is God, and I am not. We believe that at times, God will meticulously control a situation. And there are times when the situation plays out. Amen? God, in his foreknowledge, knows all and sees all. God has already seen the, the, the history to the future, present to the past and beyond. God knows all. He is omniscient. Amen? We are an Arminian church. We believe that we truly have free will to accept or reject the gift of salvation. But there are times, listen to this, when God throughout history has imposed His will on someone in order that His glory would be revealed. Someone say, God is God, and I am not. There are certain things that God has ordained to happen in the future and happen in history. And they will happen. They're foreordained. They will happen because God is sovereign. Amen? There are some things that, just like I said a minute ago, there are times where God meticulously controls a situation. And we may not be happy with not having our opinion counted. How many have ever been unhappy with not having your opinion counted? Come on. See, the problem is this. We live in a democratic society. We live in a democratic culture, which makes us think that our opinion counts for everything. Right? It makes us think that our opinion counts for everything or that our opinion should count all of the time. The fact is, that's not a biblical rule of thumb. God is God and I am not, regardless of what my opinion is. Regardless of what my opinion is, God is going to be God. Amen? And so some people would say, well, doesn't that make God kind of unrighteous? Oh, Because Paul says this, go to the next verse. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy and have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And listen to this carefully. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For the very purpose I raise you up now that now when Paul is speaking about Pharaoh here, he's going back to the time of Moses. Okay? So he jumps in and throughout history. As the people who are reading this would be reading it, they would understand this. Okay? In uh in today's society, in today's culture, it has to be explained a bit further. But it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. In discussing how God works, some may accuse him of not being righteous. Paul says clearly that this is not the case. And he brings up Pharaoh. He brings up the, the, the case out of Exodus. Amen? Are you following me? Pharaoh was keeping Israel in bondage. How many know the story? Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. It's a really good one. Love the movie. Pharaoh was keeping Israel in bondage, but God raised him up to a position of power 
and at times hardened his heart to not allow the Israelites freedom until the time was right. In doing so, his glory and power was shown in all the earth. Amen? Non-Israelites learned the power of Israel's God. Non-Israelites, I'm telling you, when, 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 those, when, when they were let go, when they crossed the Red Sea, when the waters parted, you can bet the whole world learned about the glory of God. Verse 19 says this, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then how can he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Remember, God is God and I am not, right? Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you not made me, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor. Go to the next slide. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now in reading the passage about Pharaoh and the potter and the clay, one is made for honor, the other for dishonor, the Calvinists would say this, see, see, we are right about God choosing and predestination and election and all that that means. And to that, I would point out a few things. One is that to read this in context, I've said this before, we have to read all three chapters together. 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11. We have to read it in context, the chapters that pertain to Israel and Romans. Secondly, the word about Pharaoh's heart in the Hebrew. So it says that God hardened his heart, right? How many know the story? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The word there is the Hebrew word shazak. Say shazak. I like that's a cool word, right? Shazak. Doug, say shazak. A little bit more emphasis, but that's okay. Shazak. The word means this. This is interesting. The word means to strengthen or to encourage. Shazak. The only time it's used as the word harden Pharaoh's heart is used in Exodus. It says this. God, I like what this commentary says. God did not change Pharaoh's heart to make him want to kill the Hebrews. God didn't change Pharaoh. He already wanted to kill the Hebrews. He already wanted to kill the Jewish people. What God did was give him the courage to follow through with what he already desired to do. Now, this is a very clear thing here, because in doing this, God wasn't imposing upon his free will. He was simply giving him courage. And we there's something else we should be sure of. The Bible says that God wishes that none would perish. Amen? The Bible says God wishes that none would perish. God would rather see Pharaoh have repented than die in the Red Sea. 
God always prefers that a person would repent, and that's why he makes repentance possible. But Pharaoh wasn't interested in repentance. If he had been, we can be confident that God would have dealt with him differently. Pharaoh wasn't interested in repentance. The third thing I would say to the Calvinists has to do with the clay. has to do with the clay. Uh, The Bible says that some are built for honor and some for dishonor. This has to do with how we respond to the Father working in and through us. How do we respond to the potter when we are the clay? He is the potter, I am the clay, amen? I can cooperate in his hands or I can reject him. And if I reject him, I become a vessel of dishonor. 2 Timothy 2.20 says this. It says this. I want, I want you to listen to this carefully. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purges himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. Our free will here is clearly defined in that at times we have to purge ourselves from the things of this world. How many know that at times we have to purge ourselves from the things of this world? Pastor David, how how do we do that? How, How do we purge ourselves from the things of this world? He goes on in 2 Timothy to say this. Go to the next slide. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who called on the Lord out of a pure heart. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. It's interesting to look at the language here. It says this, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. It comes back to free will. It comes back to free will so that they may come to their senses. How do we purge ourselves from this world? One, we flee youthful lusts. How many were teenagers once? Come on. How many are still teenagers? There you go. We have a few teenagers here today. Remember how things were when you were a teenager? If you got excited about something, you didn't think about it. You just went and did it, right? There is no thinking involved. Now, there's some people who are who are uh, mature beyond their beyond their age sometimes, and so sometimes they think about it. But uh, let me give you an example of this. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Okay. A friend of mine said, Hey, Dave, let's go egg this guy's house. Come on. And so we took his Honda car, a uh, little Honda two-seater car, to uh, down the road to the to a guy's house, he had an egg and I had an egg. And by the way, my little sister was with me and she had an egg. Mom and Dad, if you're listening to this, I'm very sorry. <laughs> and what we did was we got out of the car. My friend threw an egg, my sister threw an egg, and I chucked an egg. 
I mean, they just, woo, you know, I, I, I took it. And you heard the egg hit the house, and then you heard my sister's egg not hit the house because she couldn't aim, and then you heard my egg, and it didn't hit the house, it went through a window. Yeah. Now, I was not thinking. I ran to the car. My sister had already been in the car and wouldn't open the door. (laughs) She opens the door just as my friend starts to take off, and I am now being dragged by a Honda down the street. Have you ever been pulled by something and you're running faster than you know you you should be? uh, There's a supernatural strength. That comes, I mean, you're just all of a sudden your legs are going faster than they've ever gone before because you're being pulled in that way. And so my friend, I yell and my friend slams on the brakes and I hit the door and I fall to the street and I'm writhing in pain as I climb into the seat and we go. <sighs> I was an idiot. An absolute, you just, you didn't think about consequences. Oh, you want, oh, you want to jump off a cliff? You want to jump into the, yeah, yeah, whatever. How shallow is it? I don't know. Let's jump. Right? That's what, that when you're, when you're in your youth, when you're in your teen years, you hardly ever think about consequences. Right? But it says this, flee youth. How many know that a lot of times you didn't think about consequences when it came to who you dated? Come on. A lot of times you didn't think about consequences with, with what girl you were going out with or what guy you were going out with. You began to, whoa, whoa, he's giving, he's giving me the look. Right? <laughs> when you're a teenager, you're just, you get butterflies in your stomach and I'm just, whoa, I'm excited. A girl likes me. Woo. Right? I get a, well, she, she sent me a note that said, do you like me? Yes or no? Check one. And I got all excited inside. Gary, do you know what I'm talking about? No, I didn't think so. That's okay. <laughs> we have, we get excited and we don't think about the, we just want to go out with them now, right? They like me. I like them. Let's just go out. It doesn't, consequences, don't even worry about them. The Bible says to flee youthful lusts. To pursue righteousness. This is how we purge ourselves from the earth. To have peace with those who call on the Lord. To to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. How many know there's a lot of foolish and ignorant disputes happening today? There's a lot of foolish and ignorant disputes happening today. Knowing that they generate strife. As a servant of the Lord, don't quarrel, but be gentle to all. Are we perfect on this? No. But can we, can we do better? Yes. Are we perfect in it? No. But can we do better? Yes. Hmm. It's a clear representation that we have the ability to come to our senses and escape the snare of the enemy. In verses 25 through 29 of Romans 9, Paul reemphasizes, um, all of what he's already said by showing how God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. How God spoke to them about Israel. And then we come to verse 30. Go to verse 30. It says this. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even when the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. That's a lot of wording for what it says here. It says this, the Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness at all. How did they attain it? The, 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 the Jews, the Israelites, they had the law of righteousness, but they have not attained it. What's the difference here? Because the Jews did not seek it by faith. Goes verse 32, sorry. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, by the works of the law. They weren't seeking it by faith. They were seeking it by the law. The Gentiles didn't know any better. They were seeking it by faith. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. This is in reference to Israel. And it says this, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul firmly places the blame on Israel. The ball was in their court. The ball was in their court. They did not seek righteousness by faith, but by the law. And again, this points to our free will. You say, Pastor David, you spend a lot of time talking about uh, Calvinism and Arminianism and, and, and what the difference is, because in a church, it's not just about patty cake, rainbows, and sunshine. Amen? Amen. Sometimes we just need good teaching. To know what the sovereignty of God is. To know what the differences are in certain aspects and areas of our faith. It shouldn't cause disunity and it shouldn't cause divisiveness, right? There can be debate and that's okay. But don't let it ever become to where it causes divisiveness or disunity. Amen? Amen. Just like Israel, you have a choice this morning. We have a choice to accept or reject the gift of God. Amen? We can choose to purge ourselves from the traps that mess us up. How many know there's traps that just mess us up? There's things that we, there's things that we take part in that we know we should not. We need to purge ourselves from unrighteousness. How do we do that? Simply by having faith in Christ. Simply by engaging by faith in Christ. You can't call yourself a Christian and live like a non-Christian. It doesn't make sense. Israel, parts of Israel were not a part of Israel. Just because they were related to Abraham did not make them children of the promise. It's a matter of belief. It's a matter of faith. Amen? It's a matter of purging ourselves from unrighteousness. Let's stand this morning and go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank You for the message this morning. Lord, I thank You that You are sovereign and that we have free will. I heard one pastor say that it is a divine mystery I like that. It is one of those things that we just don't quite understand. 
Lord, how you can be sovereign, but we can have free will. How you can be absolutely in control, but but we still have a choice. Lord, I pray that you would work in and through us this next week, that we would purge ourselves from the world. That we would purge ourselves from unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that Lord, I pray that we would not call ourselves Christian if we're not living like a Christian. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction to our hearts that we would repent. Lord, I bring that you would bring conviction to our hearts that we would repent and enjoy righteousness with you. Lord, I know this is a, a tough and heavy theological message, but God, I pray that what's been spoken today would be remembered. Lord, that they would people would remember it in their hearts and minds. That you would bring it back to them in situations and times when necessary. Lord, I pray over those who are here and I pray that you would bless them and keep them. Lord, that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And God, that you would give them rest. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.